Well, and amen. And uh, I am Robbie Baxter. I'm the director of simulation here at Christ Community Church. I'm so glad to be with you this morning. Thank you for coming to worship with us. We are going to be in Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. We are closing out our um, look at the suffering servant poem, the last one, the fourth one. And, uh, and remember that one of the reasons why we've paid so much attention lately to this particular poem, well, there's lots of good reasons, but one of them is that this particular poem is quoted more than any of the other uh, suffering servant poems in Isaiah in the New Testament. And you've seen a little bit of why uh, the suffering, this particular poem is quoted so much, I think, is that it's filled with so much uh, helpful reminders of what Jesus has done for us. It's really helped us to um, I think, at least me, I, I'm sure you can resonate with this, understand a little bit better how, though it is very easy, maybe, as we've heard the gospel many times, especially if you've been Christians for a long while and have been in the church for a long while, to, for it to become very familiar, um, we see in this poem something of the majesty of the gospel, something of the greatness of Jesus. And it's been kind of counterintuitive to the way that we sometimes think. Remember how Matt shared with us a couple weeks ago about how the suffering servant is a suffering servant. And that just goes straight against the way we usually think about greatness and majesty and, and goodness and how the Lord brings goodness into our own lives and saves us. It's, it's through suffering. And, and that ought to really clue us into not only how good God is and what he's called us into, but just how countercultural all of that is. And remember, too, Cameron shared with us last week about how uh, we see in this poem that Jesus came and died the death that he didn't deserve to give us eternal life and peace that we didn't deserve, even knowing that oftentimes we would be dismissive of our need of the gospel. Um, maybe not outwardly, maybe it's not so explicitly, but certainly in the ways that we can sometimes just assume, ah, I know all that already. I don't need to pay much attention. How we can be apathetic about our need to go before the Lord in prayer. How we can be dismissive even of our need for family worship as the people of God. And Jesus knew all this, and yet he was willing, more than willing, to come and die for his people to give us eternal life and peace. And, you know, as much as that challenges us, it certainly challenges me and convicts us of ways in which we can continue to grow, continue to lean into the gospel, isn't it also comforting to know that Jesus did this for his people and that there is no avenue that we can go down? There is no mistake that we can make that will mean that the future is over for us or that his love is somehow negated for us. He loves us that much and the gospel covers us that deeply. And that's a good thing to be reminded of. So as I say, we, we come now to the end of this uh, suffering servant poem. And uh, we're going to see now in these last few stanzas that the suffering servant, that is Jesus, he takes great delight in the suffering that he has accomplished for his people. That is to say, he is not only able to bear their sins and the wrath of God on the cross for his people, but he does it gladly. He does it willingly. How many of us know a Savior who joyfully reconciled his people to God? Joyfully reconciled his people to God. How many of us in this room need a Savior who is satisfied in making us righteous by the blood of his cross, despite knowing how sinful and self-centered and indifferent we often are to the gospel? How many of us need the strength that comes, not from what we have done to earn it, but from what Christ has accomplished and freely shares with us? And again, I say this, and this is a good opportunity to be reminded of, look, sometimes this does become familiar, but here's an opportunity to, to think again, to be reminded anew of the glory of the gospel. 
We could say it even in this simple way, the key truth, I think. God willingly crushed Christ upon the cross. God willingly crushed Christ upon the cross so that we would be built up in him as his beloved people. That raises a question, I think, for us straight off the bat. Um, Where do you go to know that you are valued even when you are overcome by the recognition of your sin? Where do you go to find strength to live and, and really to be a help to others even when you see your mistakes and your tendency to be indifferent about the things of God? This suffering servant poem is reminding us that we have no other place to go than to Christ himself. And we can go there joyfully and confidently because he willingly, he gladly bore our sins upon the cross, despite knowing how often we can be indifferent to it. And Charles Spurgeon, he, he summed it up. I think he, in a way, kind of put our key truth in a more succinct way, as Spurgeon was wont to do. But he said it like this, and I just love this. You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Well, let's see it from the text itself. This is Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Well, we'll stop there for just a minute. Throughout this poem, we've seen how important this word yet is multiple times, haven't we? And and here we have another one. At the very beginning in verse 10, begins off with this yet. What does this yet refer to? Well, we can see it in verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And we see there this sort of strange way of talking about the work that Jesus did, right? On the one hand, we are full of guilt and iniquity. And the greatest sin that has ever been done in the face, on the face of this planet was the putting to death of the most righteous man that ever lived, namely Jesus. And yet, though that is our guilt and our doing, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? Why did God will to crush Jesus? That's a strong way of putting it, don't you think? Willing to crush Jesus. The answer is that we, his people, are full of guilt. We're full of iniquity. We are not righteous. We need a guilt offering that will make atonement for our sin, that will satisfy God's judgment against sin. And unless we have the one who will make such an offering for us, we must stand before God himself and answer for our sin. And if we did that, we would be utterly consumed. God was not willing that his people should perish. Therefore, he willingly crushed his servant, his own son, in our stead. And observe a few things from this thought. God's wrath against sin, God's judgment against violence, against deceit, against transgression and iniquity, against all the things that we are full of and we have willingly done, is crushing. We have sinned against an infinite God, and justice demands an infinite satisfaction. Who can can stand in this fire? Who can stomach the grief of such a sentence? And observe here the necessity of a divine Savior. 
Do you have a mediator who is able to stand in your place against the wrath of God against sin? God has provided such a one in Christ and made way for reconciliation with him. In Christ, we are counted as righteous. In Christ, an offering has been made in our place so that we can escape the grief and the fire of God's wrath against sin. And this is so because the suffering servant is not merely a good man, but the divine son. His offering answers the infinite justice that God requires for our sin because he is infinitely worthy. No one but Christ could ever make such an offering. No one. And that is why God willed to crush his son. It is, I grant you, strong language. It ought to make us uncomfortable, in fact. We shouldn't be sort of folks who go around and, I don't know, sometimes think that we are so full of all the right answers that things like this don't shock us anymore. It's meant to shock us. God willed to crush his own son. And yet it reminds us both of the horribleness of our own sin and the wrath of God against sin. Sometimes we can just be so blasé about our own sin, and here we see we shouldn't be. And yet, on the other hand, it reminds us of how great a Savior we have and how great God's love is for us. He bore the infinite wrath of God against sin because he is infinitely worthy. Unless we stop at this very sobering thought, see again in verse 11, I'm sorry, no, in, in the second half of verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The servant lives again. The suffering servant is able to bear God's wrath and not be destroyed by it. Christ has suffered the penalty of God's wrath against sin and defeated the sentence of death. Here you see 700 years at least before the fact, God shows his people that his servant will suffer the agony of death and rise to life again. Christ is alive. He's not dead. And his people are assured of new life in him. We are assured of new life in him. Free from the sentence of condemnation. Jesus has seen his offspring. That's us. That's, that's the church. And he's seen what he accomplished for them, and he is satisfied by it. The will of the Lord has truly prospered in his hand. We'll see here also, the will of God is the will of his servant. It is not as though uh, God was willing to crush Jesus in our stead, and Jesus merely went along with it. It's like, well, uh, okay, if you say so. No, it's much greater than that. The will of the Father is the will of the Son. We see the heart of God himself in the heart of his servant, and they take great delight in the salvation of God's people. We enter into a deep mystery here because this is really the Trinitarian plan and accomplishment of redemption laid out before us. And we would be foolish to think that we can completely wrap our minds all around it. Yet for all the mystery... How glorious is the truth that is clearly revealed here to us. The Father willed to crush the Son, and the Son willed to be crushed so that we would be reconciled to God forever. You see, to describe this as divine child abuse is really, really pretty vapid and confused, and it misses the whole point of what God means to communicate to us. It is shocking. It is even mysterious. But it is the will of the one uh, the one purpose of the one God, to bring a people to himself, to redeem us as his treasured possession. 
So it's not divine child abuse. It's the best story that could ever be told. It's our only hope and our greatest delight. Observe here also God's delight in the plan and the accomplishment of redemption. God delighted to secure redemption for his people. He delighted in our peace and prosperity. He delighted to think of his people gathered about him, enjoying life with him forever. The peace and life and prosperity of his people in complete righteousness gave him great delight, and it gave the suffering servant great delight. Jesus, even upon the cross, was able to bear the wrath and the agony of God, to to make atonement for our sins and not to be completely overcome by it, because he knew what he was doing it for. He saw us before him, and it, it gave him great delight. Do we have such a Savior? Is that our understanding of the gospel? One who brings us to God and takes satisfaction in it? Who but Christ delights in the redemption of his people? What other false gods could we possibly follow? Or all the idols in the world, what other sorts of things that we go after to find satisfaction that could possibly be described like this? One who recognizes the guilt of his people and delights to bring them back to God. It gives him great delight. So I ask you this question. It's a good one to ponder every now and then. In what ways does the gospel shape your view of God? It ought to shape our view of God massively because it goes right against the grain of all the things that we, our own sinful hearts, which oftentimes rise up to condemn us as we sung last night, sometimes our own sins rise up to meet us. And yet, what are they in comparison with the gospel and the truth that he has revealed to us in Christ? And we hear opposite messages all the time from the world which tell us to be strong in our own strength, which tell us to find satisfaction in relationships or money or wealth or or what have you. It could be a billion different things. Do we have such a Savior? Do we recognize that the gospel is so much better than that? We have a Savior who delighted to bring his people to God and finds great delight when he pictures in in the mind of his own eye his people all about for him in, in righteousness, singing his praises forever. That's what gives the heart of God, great delight. Do we have such a Savior? John Calvin put it this way, Isaiah could not have better expressed the infinite love of Christ toward us than by declaring that he takes the highest delight in our salvation and that he rests in it as the fruit of his labors, as someone who has obtained his wish rests in that which he most ardently desired. I mean, we could easily imagine how that could be true of our own selves. Imagine uh, as you could very easily, I think, uh, something which you longed for for so long and you finally got it and how much satisfaction it brought you. Yes, the, the fruit of my labors. Yes, the, the consummation of all this hope and longing. Well, it's the same with God for his people. Yes, my people, the ones whom I love, the ones whom I was able to bear the wrath of God and bring them to righteousness. Do we recognize God's great love toward us? Well, let's turn to verse 12 and see the strength of the redeemed in Christ. It goes on. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, observe here a couple of things, really important things. First, this strange phrase, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. You see, we are made strong in Christ. We're not counted as merely barely worth his notice, despite our tendency oftentimes to forget his goodness. 
despite our repeated indifference, despite just sometimes our plain old sleepiness about the things of God. He loves us and delights in us, and he makes us strong in him. This cuts right against our tendency um, to think in the language, as Cameron often points out, of worm theology. You understand what this means? The, the idea that, um, yes, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin upon the cross, and yes, that's all very good, but in the end of the, at the end of the day, we're still just worms, still just barely worth his notice, still uh, under the guilt and condemnation of sin, and so we ought not to get any big ideas in our heads about the love of God for us. Uh, that's very wrong, and we can see it even in this passage itself. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's God's estimation of us in Christ, that we are strong. Not that we are not barely worth his notice, but that we're strong in him. And this is a strength that comes from his righteousness. You see, our guilt is atoned for. Our shame is covered. We are completely forgiven so that we can go before the throne of grace confident, not only that God hears us, but that he delights to hear from us, not as people covered in his sight with the guilt of our own sin and needing to be ashamed of it, but as people who are covered with the righteousness that Christ provides as strong and as able to go into the throne of, to approach the throne of grace in Christ. And this is a strength that grows, you see, as we are sanctified. You see, our confidence in God is restored in the gospel. Not completely, of course. This is a, this is the strange paradox almost of, of living the Christian life. Here on the one hand, we have the great promises of God and they seem so much better even than we could possibly have hoped for ourselves. On the other hand, we still recognize our tendency to be slow to believe all that it means for us, our tendency to forget how to live it out in the Christian life, our tendency even to be indifferent about these things. But you, you see here that we are strong in Christ, and that means we grow. We grow in this confidence as, our, as we grow in our sanctification. So the Holy Spirit, we can recognize, as we remember from our last sermon series, has been given to us to help us to grow in this realization, help us to grow in this reality. And you see also that Jesus continually makes intercession for his people. He continually does so. So that every moment um, we know that God sees us through the work and medi mediation of Christ himself. And this ought to give us great confidence. It ought to give us, as one pastor says, almost a sort of gutsy guilt. That is to say, even the moments when we sin, and we recognize how much that offends God. We see in our own hearts how much that is not what we want to be anymore now that we have the life of Christ living within us. We can recognize that even in that moment, God does not look upon us with arms crossed, furrowed brow, as if to say, uh, I wish he could do better. I wish he would just live up. No, but Christ continually makes intercession for us so that even in those moments, God looks upon us with great love and with great mercy, and his promises are no less true for us in that moment than they are at any other time. So we ought to have a sort of gutsy guilt. And this is also a strength that grows and delights in God's commandments. It's a, source, it's a, it's a, it's a strength that finds its source in God's law and not in our own wits and reason. And, unless we think, again, because sometimes as Reformed, good Christian folk, we can forget about this. Um, lest you think that that's just ho-hum and, and to be expected, recognize how countercultural that message is. This week, just as a sort of experiment, I just Googled how to be strong. How to be strong. What, what do people say? How to be strong. And it's very interesting. I don't know if this speaks to our sort of cultural moment, kind of where we are as a culture or not, or whether it's universal. Uh, maybe some of y'all could answer that better than I could. But one of the first results to pop up 
was be strong by recognizing that everybody else has problems the same as you do, and so therefore you don't need to be concerned about any sort of judgment that they might latch onto you. You can just go on and, and do your own thing. They used a, a, a pretty nasty word to kind of describe that, but just be your own person. Do your own thing. Don't worry about anybody else. That's how to be, str that's how to be strong. So the, the message there is your weakness or, or any sort of feelings of weakness evidently come through uh, the feelings of, of shame or, or guilt that you might allow other people to lop on top of you. And so the, the solution to that is to get rid of all that. Just recognize, yeah, they're probably just as bad or even worse than I am. And, and so I'm just going to do my own thing. And that's how to be strong. That's how to be strong. That's not the strength that Christ gives us, though. That's not the strength that's described here. That's not the strength of a suffering servant. That's a strength that recognizes or that, that assumes for itself that strength comes through being above the rest, being above the crowd, uh, of cutting off negative people in our life. As I heard one person say, my New Year's resolution is going to be cut out all the negative people from my life. <laughs> That's not the kind of strength that Christ gives us. That's not the strength of the suffering servant. This is a strength that comes from the recognition that God has called us into something much better, that we have a strength and an identity in him and therefore the freedom and the ability to reach out to others, not to find our identity in what they think of us, but to know what Christ thinks of us, and then to reach out in great love and mimic him in the work of reconciliation that he has begun in our own hearts, to reach out in love to others. So it's a source of strength that grows as you recognize that's our calling, and that's what the Lord has given to us. It prompts us, in other words, to look to his law, and to his promises, not to our own wits and resources for the strength and the ability and the know-how to make it through life. You see, it makes much of Christ and not ourselves. And so this is really to say that this is a strength for the life of the world. It expects to inherit the world through humility. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. I don't know about you, but sometimes I know the right Sunday school answer to say, uh, yeah, okay, I can, yes, that, that's true. The meek shall inherit the earth, but oh man, how often have I bristled right against that? I don't want to be meek when it comes down to it. I want to be strong. I want other people to think that I'm great. I want other people to think that I'm smart. Many of you know this already from personal experience. Sometimes I just have the most difficult time whenever I perceive that somebody else thinks I've messed up in some particular way or that I don't know something that I think I ought to know. That just, ah, that irks me so much. And yet Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. So it's a strength that recognizes in great humility that has been given for the life of the world, for others. Just as the Lord was willing to crush his son for our sake, so that we will be brought in in redemption to his family. And just as Jesus was willing to be crushed for our sake, so that he could in great delight rejoice in his redeemed people as righteous people in his kingdom forever. So we are called to be willing for the life of the world to have the sort of strength that's willing to be humble, that's willing to recognize we don't have it all together most of the time, but we have a Savior who does and who gives us the strength to be there for the life of the world. You see, it delights in redemption and reconciliation, not in defeat and subjugation of our enemies. I mean, goodness, you only have to go around the news these days and, and just hear the way in which we are so tempted to speak about people who disagree with us on sometimes pretty minor when it comes down to it political issues to recognize this is not the way the world thinks we want our enemies to know they're wrong and to know we are right and that's just the end of it 
You know, how many times have I heard someone who will speak about someone who they disagree with and they will say something like, you know, oh, he would just forget about him. Disinvite him from, from every podium, get, take away his ability to speak. He ought to know he's wrong. That's wrong. And sometimes the things that these people are saying are wrong. Sometimes we do wish they wouldn't say what they say. And yet oftentimes it betrays just our tendency to, to think more in terms of not reconciliation, redemption, not, oh, Lord, help me to be patient with this person. Help me to be a light, uh, your light, so that they can grow and, and come to know you as I know you. Instead, rather, our tendency is just to go in the opposite direction. Oh, these people ought to know they're wrong. They ought to know I'm right. But rather, the strength the Lord gives us is a strength that delights in redemption and reconciliation for the life of the world. So, another question. In what ways does the gospel shape your view of yourself? That's a good question to ask, too. I once heard a seminary professor say that we could probably sum up most of the problems we face in life as coming down to a way in which we answer one of three questions, or more likely than not, answer all three of these questions together. The first would be, what do we think God thinks of us? The second would be, what do we think we think of us? And the third would be, what do we think we think God thinks of us. That's a little bit convoluted, but you see the point. In other words, how are we understanding our view of ourselves in relation to God, our view of God in all of his majesty, and our view of the way that God thinks about us? Well, how does the gospel shape our view of ourselves? Does it shape our view of ourselves as people who ought to be strong in our own strength, as people who ought to be right, who ought to be celebrated in the eyes of the world, or as people who are willing to be humble? willing to give away our life for reconciliation. John Oswald, he put it well. Again, just a one-liner, but a good way of putting it all together. The servant did not come to tell people what God wants. Rather, he came to be what God wants for us. That's, that's the gospel. That's the gospel, folks. God came to be what he wants for us. And that's great news indeed. Knowing how often we fail, to live this out, knowing how often we are indifferent to the good things of the gospel. God came to be what he wants for us. So what do we see in Isaiah 53, 10 through 12? At least two things. We see that God willingly crushed his servant upon the cross so that we would be built up in him as his beloved people. Again, something that if we've been Christians for a long while may become a little bit rote, a little bit familiar but something that we ought to often remind ourselves of. Be reminded of, God takes great delight in the salvation of his people, and he's done it so that we could be strong in him. Not as people who are beat around and um, suffer under the shame and guilt of our own remaining corruption, but as people who can be strong in him for the life of the world. May we be that for the life of the world. May we be people who radiate the gospel in the way that we think and talk and even in the emotions that we express before our watching world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you for this season when we can take some time to set aside to be reminded again of our servant Jesus who came for us not to tell us merely what you demand of us, but to be what you demand of us, for us, so that in him we could have redemption. In him, our sin could be covered and atoned for. In him, we could stand in the fire of your holiness and enjoy it forever and not be undone by it. 
and in him that we could be strong. We could be strong for the life of the world. We could be strong in the knowledge that you love us and have called us to you as your beloved people. So Lord, help us to hear this. Help us to remember what a great mediator we have in Jesus. And may that prompt us to be people who in great humility could give up some of our rights from time to time for the life of the world, who could be willing to bear with the meek and bear with the weak and be patient and be humble and not be undone by these things, but to help the family of God to grow bigger so that more people could rejoice in your kingdom forever. Lord, may we be people who continue to delight in what you command and long for all that you promise so that our hearts would really be truly set in heaven where true joy is to be found. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.